I proposed the topic of Logos in Africa yes. for a symposium there. So uh, he's, he said the idea was interesting and he's thinking it over. So I proposed okay. it for this coming uh, February, uh, February okay. of 2021, because they have that, they okay. have their annual conference every time around that year. All right. So I just thought I'd let you know. What, okay, what, for sure, they organize that one, I'll go for it. Yeah, good, good. Yeah. I, hope, I hope they do go for it, because I think it was a good, good collaboration. Yeah. I think that the kids, also the kids uh, at uh, Strathmore, uh, would profit from it because they were all uh, it was a very high level philosophical discussion we had there especially yeah. for high school students and yeah. I challenged them by talking about the 16 year old Indian boy and I figured as soon as I say that they're not going to <laughs> want to think that the Indians are smarter than they are so <laughs> I thought I thought I thought it went well the other thing is that uh, Logos Rising is now out yes I've been watching your videos and uh... Yeah, I don't have the ease of getting books online as most other people do out there. But right. uh, yeah. So if if this if, let me let me just give you the big plan in my head at this point, whether it comes All about, right. if if he is interested, mm -hmm. if they are interested, if the philosophy department is interested, mm -hmm. if you are interested, I would consider publishing a run of maybe a thousand books. All right, thousand logos books, and that would eliminate in Nairobi. I'm sure I assume you have publishing or printers in Nairobi. Yes, yes, we do. The book, so that would eliminate all the shipment costs and all that other type of stuff. Mm. Uh, especially, especially if either you or they would consider this as using this as a textbook. Because I think ah, I make, see what you mean. Yeah, it would. That would be I good for would, university. Yeah. I think it would make a good introduction to philosophy textbook. Yeah. So if yeah. all of those stars come into alignment, then I would consider uh, printing <laughs> a run of Logos Rising in Nairobi so that the book would be available at a reasonable price for the people there. Okay, fine. A thousand. That is ambitious, but fine. Let us see. Okay. Okay, so I guess we... Start straight away with the questions that I, I, yes. I have in mind for today. Yeah. Okay. I I asked a question in my last email about the logos and monogamy, where monogamy here has to do with uh, yeah, one man, one woman. And then initially you had said that they, the logos did, did not take root in Africa because of polygamy. Polygamy derailed the logos. So your, your main point was that for as long as monogamy is not the main, you know, relationship between a man and a woman, the logos will somehow never take root in Africa. So I, I, I took issue with that. And you said you're going to explain further in this interview. So I'm really keen on this idea that if monogamy doesn't take root, are there other avenues where the logos is still present or you can say alive in, in a society? Yes. Well, first of all, Logos is primarily speech. So yeah. any place that there is a human being, there are going to be spe people speaking a language. And that is the fundamental uh, manifestation of Logos in any culture. So you, okay. you cannot have human beings without human speech and human organization. So obviously there is Logos in Africa. Okay. All right. The question is, why didn't Logos develop in Africa? 
Exactly. Why did it, it develop? Why, or the, the reverse of that question would be, why did it develop someplace else? Yeah. For, for example, uh, to, to get way back to the beginning, let's talk about around 15,000 to 10,000 BC. What you saw on the Eurasian plain was uh, the domestication of the dog, which took place around 13,000 BC, and then the invention of the wheel, which uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and the, the domestication of the horse. Yeah. Now, uh, when I was uh, in uh, East Africa, it struck me that there's a uh, it's a savanna, it's plain. Mm-hmm. It's not like the Congo, which is a rainforest. Uh, you could never develop the wheel in the ra- in the rainforest. Okay, <laughs> you could yeah. never develop the wheel in Switzerland. It makes the wheel makes no sense in Switzerland. If you mm. have a mountainous forest, it, you can't use the wheel. So the question mm. is, why did the wheel develop there and not here? I don't know. The answer is, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe yeah. it's the the normal state of affairs is that nothing develops. Everything goes on the way it was, and everyone struggles. And it's mm. the exception when something develops, but it did develop there. And then you come mm. to the question of, well, why did the concept logos appear in Greece? Yes. In those, those, uh, and nowhere else. It, it, and not even in, uh, let's say, among the Hebrews. Yeah. The Hebrews were instructed by God himself, but they didn't have an abstract language. Yeah, the, Greeks, the Greeks were pagans, but they developed a language that was very abstract and, and conducive to philosophy. Mm. Philosophy is a Greek term. And so I think uh, there are people like uh, Dawson, Christopher Dawson, who simply says, well, it's, it's the Greek miracle. In other words, it's a complete miracle that any of this stuff developed at all anywhere on Earth and certainly uh, in Greece. Other people would say, well, maybe it was the the fact that it was in Ionia, which is Mm. on the western coast of uh, Turkey now, but it was uh, the Persian Empire. So maybe Mm. it was the contact between these Greeks and Persians at this point. Persia had an ancient culture. The Greek there. I talk about this in the book, but basically the difference between Greeks and Persians is the Greeks talked a lot. They (laughs) talked a lot more than Persians did. (laughs) <laughs> and 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 Aristotle said, um, if you have to work for a living, you can't be a citizen of Athens, because in order to be a citizen of Athens, you have to spend your whole day attending meetings. So it's like <laughs> yeah. a university, you know, where you waste all your time talking in, in meetings. The Persians did not do that. Mm. The Persians, uh, you know, they they had the Asiatic kind of worship of the the emperor as a god. And you didn't talk a whole lot. And then I was in uh, Golestan during a conference. This is now in Iran. And uh, met the head of Radio Golestan, who said that uh, Persians never wrote anything down. Persians had an attitude toward if it it was really important, you wouldn't talk about it it, to the the public. You would keep it secret. It would be like the Masonic Lodge where you kept it secret and only members knew about it. And if you wrote it down, you might carve it on the top of a mountain, carve it in stone on top of a mountain. Yeah. Well, if you ha- add all these things together, uh, you're going to have a situation where Logos will not develop. But I think the real question is not so much why didn't it develop? It didn't yeah. develop everywhere. It developed yeah. in one place. 
I mean, uh, again, other than the fact that every human being is speaking a language, it only developed in one place. Mm-hmm. And that was Greece. And between that and the Hebrew scriptures, you had the beginning of what we what would be a dynamic marriage of the two known as Christianity. And from mm-hmm. that point on, Christianity is where Logos developed, and it didn't develop elsewhere. So, for example, in the, the Islamic world, if you compare that to Europe at this time, mm-hmm. let's say the, the 7th century, well, the Islamic world, uh, uh, well, that was the beginning of the Islamic world, the Arabic conquest. They had all the texts of Aristotle long before the Europeans did. Mm. The Europeans were uh, constantly being subjected to barbarian invasion. The Vikings from the north and the Saracens from the south. And it's a miracle that any civilization survived there. It's literally a miracle if you look at Mm. the time of Charlemagne. But it Mm. did develop because, and I'm saying the crucial factor in the development of Logos in Europe was the Trinity. It came down to a crucial understanding of the Trinity, which is basically what happened during the first 300 years of Christianity. They basically had to hammer out an understanding of ultimate reality that made use of revelation from the Hebrews, Mm. but philosophical language from the Greeks. So if it comes down to 325, uh, the Council of Nicaea. Mm. And you have to speak Greek, basically, to take part in the council. The, yeah. Latin fathers were, the Latin fathers were spared. They did not get involved in heresy because they couldn't speak Greek. So you had to have a term like homoousion. Homoousion <laughs> yeah. was the formula, consubstantial, one in being. That's what it meant. And it all revolved around Greek categories of thought. If you didn't have these Greek categories of thought, you could not proceed. And the places where they did not, did not proceed. So what you had with the Persians, who were an advanced culture. Hmm. So I've said this many times, but I, to, my Pers- to my Iranian friends, I say, your, your people were astronomers and philosophers when my people were chasing pigs through the forest of yeah. Germany. Yeah, how do you think I've that? said that many times. They yeah. had a, a, a big head start, and yet the Logos did not develop there because, mm-hmm. first of all, they, they got their idea of Christianity from Nestorian heretics, so they didn't know that Jesus Christ was God, true God mm-hmm. and true man. And secondly, they were conquered by Arabs <laughs> who were uh, not a philosophical people. They were camel drivers. They had camels and goats, and they they had a warrior spirit, and the Koran united them as their national epic, and they conquered a a cultured people like the Persians, and the Persians never recovered. To this day, they have not Mm -hmm. recovered. So I'm Mm -hmm. saying, you put all this together, it's not surprising that Logos did not develop in Africa, because it didn't Mm -hmm. develop anywhere other than one place on Earth, and that was Greece, and combine and, and with Christianity. So I got in trouble with the white boys, okay? <laughs> yeah. Because I said the only difference between Africa and Europe, I said it more specifically, the only difference between the Diocese of Mbinga and the Diocese of Würzburg is 800 yeah. years of Christianity. That's what I said. So that's where 
they were outraged at that because they have all this kind of <laughs> racial mysticism that they're yeah. involved in. But uh, that's why I left it with them, and, and that's why I'm leaving it with you. Okay, fine. Uh, could we focus on this idea of the Trinity, the one that you, you just mentioned now, that there was an understanding of the Trinity that Christianity had that somehow gave flesh to the Greek concept of logos. So I want to ask that question vis-a-vis -vis marriage and monogamy. Can you say that for as long as your Christianity does not understand or go deeper into the idea of the Trinity, then you will never understand monogamy? There's a relationship of one-to-one -one in the Trinity. That's right. I think, yeah. that's, I think that's a good point. That's okay. exactly the point. Now, the problem, the Trinitarian problem was precisely the problem of the relationship between the Father and the Son. Yeah. And it, it revolved around the, the, the revelation we get from John is basically two words, son and mm. logos. We know that Jesus Christ is the son. We know that he's the logos. Now, how do we put that together? Okay, the first way you put it together is, well, if you're the son, then you're not created. Mm -hmm. You are eternal. Mm -hmm. You're co-eternal with the father. You are one in being with the father. Mm. The simple, all of the Greeks at the time of Arius felt that it was much simpler if you understood God as creating the Son. That made mm. sense to the Greeks, but unfortunately, it wasn't the proper relationship. Mm. Because and this has this has consequences for the family. Yeah. Okay. Because what you're saying is for the the other problem that Nestorius. I'm not Arius. Arius came up with. Yeah. He said, "Well, if God is the Father, then He obviously has to be exist before the Son, because you can't be a father unless that means there was a time when the Son was not." Yeah. Well, no, you're taking the metaphor. You're thinking too much in terms of the the concrete metaphor, and mm. and destroying the unique aspect of the relationship uh, with God. That's where the Aryans went wrong. And that led to a basically a universe that was a logos. Yeah. Okay. In other words, the logos did not have the intimate connection to the universe that it had if God is the son, uh, is begotten by the father with a particular job to do in relationship to the universe. Mm. Okay. The other thing is it has relationship with the family. Yeah. So what you're what you're seeing here is that the Trinity is a family. Mm. There's only one spouse. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. And I'm saying as soon as you have a polygamous society, the father recedes into the distance. Yeah. And the mother becomes much more immediate. Mm. And, and you live in a basically a matriarch. The God, God is this distant figure in yeah. a page, in a, in a polygamous society. So I mean, just when I was I was driving back from uh, uh, Western Kenya with uh, Sister Queen, and there's a story of the guy who had thirty thirty six wives, <laughs> and uh, fourteen of them were in Uganda, and the rest were in Kenya, and he was driving back. From, uh, and died of a heart attack. 
Probably mm. because the, the 16 wives in, in <laughs> wore them out or something like that. Now, you can't have the intimate, you can't have an intimate relationship with the father mm. if you're one of 57 children uh, uh, and, one, and your mother is one of 27 wives. You simply yeah. cannot have that intimate relationship with the father that yeah. you can have in a monogamous relationship. And so God becomes distant. And when God becomes distant, then yeah. uh, it's hard to figure out the universe. That, that yeah. is, I think that's the point with the development of science. Yeah, so my, so this, this happened in Islam, first of all, because they allowed polygamy. They allowed polygamy in Islam. Okay, and now you've got a distant father, and now you don't know who the son is a creature. Jesus Christ is a prophet. He's been demoted. God mm. is distant. And so the result is this uh, Maimonides talking about the Islamic God. He's the Jewish philosopher in the Middle Ages. He yeah. said, God, the Islamic God is like the caliph who mm. goes for his evening ride in his carriage. And when he gets to the gate of the palace grounds, he doesn't know whether he's going to go left or right. <laughs> now, if there's no Logos, if God hasn't left traces of Logos in the universe, then the only way you can figure things out is by reading the mind of God, which is yeah. exactly what this mullah said to me when I was in Mashad. I was trying to talk yeah. about the wheel, and he said, no, the, a prophet invented the wheel. I said, a <laughs> prophet? What are you talking about? This is 13,000 B.C., no, a prophet, because all knowledge comes from the Quran. So basically, your job, you just killed science. Okay, because science means your mind dealing with the logos that is left behind in creation by God. Mm. And since you can't figure that out, now you have to figure out the mind of God. Well, not even God knows the mind of God. <laughs> because he does, because he's pure will. And he's pure will, and your job is to submit to his will. And he doesn't even know what his will is mm. until he gets to the gate of the palace, and then he makes a decision, I'm going to go right or I'm going to go left. That is the, that is the problem here. It goes back to all, all this goes back to the Trinity, including your relationship to God. Sigmund Freud said that God is an exalted father. I think that's mm. true. It's not true the way he said it, but I think it is true. You get mm. your idea of God from the Father, from your Father. And if, you're, and if you are one of, if he has 17 wives and you're one of 47 <laughs> different children, yeah. your Father is much more distant than if he has one wife and you are one of whatever it is, five, three, whatever the size, seven, whatever it is, a normal family. <laughs> okay, fine. I, 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 I'm seeing the connection now. I'm seeing the connection. I, I, are you... Uh... Do you know much about John Paul II's theology of the body? I know something about it. I mean, one of the first articles I published in culture in Fidelity magazine was an analysis mm. of the theology of the body. Ah, okay. Well, he spent, I'm told, or at least I remember, around five years of the first years of his pontificate, just trying to expound on this original unity between man and woman. It's so right. it's almost like he he realized. This is where the problem of our culture is. We don't know how to enflesh the Trinity, or we don't know how to bring it to our relationship. So now my question is, I think he did a great job. 
I think he succeeded in somehow pinpointing this idea we have been talking about. But now I'm wondering why why Europe didn't embrace this, or I don't see. I don't see it in action as much as it should be, at least from a pontiff like him, it should have it should have resonated more than it it, it is doing yes. currently. Yeah. Okay. There is a long chapter in the Logos book on Werner Heisenberg. All right. He won, he won the Nobel Prize in nineteen thirty-one, I believe, for quantum quantum's work on quantum mechanics. Yeah. This was the crucial moment in um, Western history, where the century uh, began with German idealism, then Hegel dies, then it shifts to materialism, uh, dialectic mm. materialism, according to Karl Marx. And then by the end of the 19th century, all of the philosophers were physicists, because <laughs> mm. the physicist was now in contact with ultimate reality, which was basically something called atoms. And these yes. atoms would bump into each other. And that's what ultimate reality was. It's it's an ancient Greek idea, kind from Democritus. Yeah, uh, it's not new. Bertrand Russell is the first chapter in the book. It's all about atoms, but the whole atomic theory collapsed mm. under Werner Heisenberg, because the term atom means you can't split it. Well, yeah. you can split the atom, and you can keep splitting it until ultimately it turns into energy, and then you have an atomic bomb. Yeah. So there's no ultimate particle. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that's what Heisenberg realized. It's a form. He say he returned to Plato and said it was a form, and it's not yeah. material. Okay, did he use the word form, or did he use? Like, yes, uh, no, he uh, used the word form because his father taught Greek at the gymnasium, okay. and he read Greek. He could read Greek, and he was familiar with Plato. At the yeah. end of his life, he said, "No, matter is a form. It's not a particle. It's a form." Okay, yeah. okay. now Heisenberg then is involved in a project to create the atomic bomb. He, he, he thwarted that project. He was working for the Nazis, uh, but eventually the Americans got the atomic bomb and they conquered Germany. At mm. this point, you're, you will see now why John Paul II's ideas did not catch on. Because mm. after Germany had been conquered, it was subjected to a ruthless form of social engineering. The mm. most ruthless form of social engineering in human history. Right. psychological warfare against the Catholic Church, against the, all the German population, but against the Catholic Church, uh, waged by Jews from New York City, okay, <laughs> in order to get a license to produce a book, a play, a movie script, anything. You had to right. get a license from a Jew from New York City who was in right. charge of all of Germany. His name was David Mordecai Levy, right. okay? They decreed uh, what was permissible, and they started promoting obscenity and pornography during the 1950s. Now, Werner Heisenberg, uh, the main man who they used was Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey, the American yeah. sexologist. He, yeah. uh, this is the word where the word report came in to the German language. It's not a German word. Mm. Bericht is the German word, but report was on every magazine. Magazines were the cutting edge of communication technology, illustrated magazines with high yeah. resolution pictures. And they started promoting sexual liberation and the corruption of the sexual morals of Germany. Now, Heisenberg was the only man who'd have, who could have called Kinsey out 
and denounced him as a fraud. He was a fraud. Heisenberg is the only man who did it, and he did not do it. And I got a long letter back from his daughter uh, berating me for accusing her father of doing this. But mm. she basically said it was beneath his dignity. Well, that was a big mistake. And so you have someone like Ratzinger mm. uh, being raised. He's 12 years old or something like that when the war is over. 15 mm. years old, something like that. He is completely raised under this regiment of social engineering. And I think to a large extent, he has internalized the commands of his American oppressors. Mm. So the, the John Paul II embarks upon this uh, series of uh, lectures. Yeah. Every Wednesday, he got a series of lectures. You're right. It began with polygamy. It began yeah. with not, not so much polygamy, but divorce. Yeah. Uh, where Moses allowed divorce, you know, when the Jews come to and, and he says, but in the beginning, it was not so. Mm. Now, this is a crucial idea, especially for Africa, because mm. I think polygamy is always a sign of degeneracy. You don't, you don't find it in really primitive cultures. It, it, it comes into existence with decadence. And mm. because of fallen human nature, and if men are in charge, they all want to have more than one wife. What man doesn't yeah. want to have more than one wife? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but this is not the way it was at the beginning. Now, to get back to Germany, they, in order to fight what was going on, they had to deal with the Jews. Mm. And they could not do it. John Paul II was constitutionally incapable of dealing with the Jewish question. It had been uh, raised in Civiltà Cattolica in 1893-part series, very important. Mm. Uh, yeah. series on the Jewish question. And if John Paul II couldn't deal with it, then you know that Ratzinger could not deal with it. Yeah. You, can, you cannot deal, they could not deal with the sexual subversion of European morals that the Americans were promoting after they conquered Western Europe. They could not deal with it. Now, John Paul II couldn't deal with it because he was invade, engaged in fighting the communists. And the Americans yeah. were the enemies of the communists. So you can't make enemies of your enemies' enemies. They yeah. have to be your friends. And that led to the whole anti-communist crusade and the whole solidarity movement. And so as a result, they simply could not deal with the people who were encouraging the subversion, uh, the sexual subversion. And so they failed. That's I'm, that's okay, a who, long answer to your question of yeah. why didn't this theology of the body catch on? Why did it yeah. fail? Yeah. Who would you say then is, you said constitutionally capable. I didn't even understand exactly what that constitutional meant. Who would be capable now in our day and age if you knew such a person? Africans. Or, Africans. Ah, how, how is that possible? Because, because there are no Jews in Africa. <laughs> wow okay that's a nice one oh fine could i let me ask a question about jews here because i was thinking about it this morning have you heard of mpesa this money transfer system which 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 took which has taken root in kenya we can actually we don't need credit cards we we now transfer cash yeah. uh, to, and to I, think, I think i think sister queen does it yeah I so she, i think she uses it they have tried to replicate this system elsewhere, but it almost always fails. At least for the time being, it's present in Kenya, Uganda, a bit of it. 
East Africa, basically. But the man behind it, a CEO, is uh, his name is Michael Joseph. Well, he's a Jew, and I've, I've always wondered, I don't know if Michael Jones knows about this individual, but he started it, and I think part of the reason it was so successful is because he did such a good job at just knowing the the communication habits of Kenyans. and So, um, in fact, when someone else took over from him, a certain, uh, I think he was from Guyana, his name was Bob Colimo, he took over, he ran for a while with it. Then he died. He died sometime last year or the year before. They called back Michael Joseph and told him, you're the only one who can uh, hold fort until we right. find someone else. Yeah, so this guy is a Jew. And I was just wondering if you know him and if he could be part of... No. Maybe maybe they are in Africa and we don't know. Or maybe no, they are. Africa. They are controlling Africa. And uh, yeah. they, 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 the main way that they're controlling East Africa is through Matumba. <laughs> How is that now again? Matumba's Jewish. I, I know, I know about Matumba, but yeah. Matumba's Jewish. Where do you think it comes from? Where is all this? Where is all these used clothing come from? Every every day in Mombasa, a twenty mm. ton ball of T-shirts rolls off a ship. Where did it come from? Do you know where it comes from? It comes from New Jersey. Okay, I know it's from the United States. I, I don't know. Right. I don't know. It's, the, they, the it's Jewish <laughs> Jewish rag pickers in New Jersey. <laughs> okay? okay, and this is wrecking the economy of East Africa, mm. and the uh, the African uh, legislatures know this, and they pass tariffs against it. Mm. All the East African countries passed tariffs a while back, a couple of years ago, and what happened when they passed the tariffs? The Jewish rag pickers from New Jersey went to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, who's a Jew mm. from Wall Street. And he threatened all of East Africa with uh, economic sanctions if they mm. didn't take away their tariffs. And all of the countries except Rwanda backed down. They all backed mm. down under wow. this type of pressure. That's how the Jews are controlling East Africa. That's because Matumba wrecks the economy. Mm. When uh, Father, I forget the guy's name, Father John, who's the chancellor of the diocese of Bongoma, I met mm. with him. His father planted cotton. Mm -hmm. His father paid his way through school by selling cotton. There's not yeah. one cotton seed in Bungoma now because <laughs> of Matumba. Mm. So I tried, uh, one of the things I tried to organize, I'm there two weeks. I'm only, I'm only in Kenya for two weeks. I bring up the idea. I said, what we need to do is get all the Catholic schools to make their school uniforms out of local cotton and local wool. Mm. This will be the start of the taking back the economy. Everybody loved the idea. Everybody talked, but who's going to do it? I left and nothing happened. Someone's got to sit the bishops down and say, look, you have to do this in your diocese. Mm. You have to make sure because you can't buy. That's the great thing about Catholic school uniforms. You can't buy them in the Matumba market. <laughs> you have to buy them as uniforms. And this could be like at uh, Strathmore. All the, all the guys, they're, they're all wearing blue blazers, yeah. and gray pants, and a white shirt and a tie. This is good because you can't buy that as Matumba. <laughs> That's a big step in the right direction. And I'm saying that is some indication of Jewish influence over East Africa that no one knows about. Okay, but back to the other question where we said, 
in Africa we can find someone who can speak constitutionally somehow against uh, the Jews. So could you go back to that idea? Because on one hand you said Africa is a solution. But then again, we are also under the grip of these same Jews. First of all, the, one of the main projects of the Jews is race warfare in the United States. You've heard about what happened in Minneapolis? Yes. Okay, the Jews are behind this. The Jews have been trying to create race war in the United States ever since the beginning of the 20th century. The founding mm. of the NAACP, the Leo Frank case. I cover this in my book, The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Okay. Mm. The, the main mechanism for dividing people so that Jews can rule over them is dividing them between black and white and getting them to fight each other. So, right. why, do you remember, uh, did you see the picture of uh, all, the police officer kneeling on the neck of George Floyd? Yes, yes. I've okay, seen this is the image. Okay, bad white policeman, uh, innocent black victim. That is the yeah. message that goes out. Now, the question is, where did he learn how to do that? Where did he learn how to kneel on someone's neck? Well, it turns out the Israelis taught him how to do that. <laughs> the Minneapolis Police Department got sent to seminars given by Israelis, and the Israelis tried this out on Palestinians. Mm. Now, that's invisible. Nobody sees that. And I'm saying this is part of what we need to understand. And this is so you have uh, Africans in this regard have what you would call black privilege. Mm -hmm. Because in uh, from the left-wing perspective, you're always right. You're always right because you're black. Now, the problem mm -hmm. is you're Africans, and you don't act the way American blacks act, okay? Mm -hmm. You're off innocent in your own little world there where you're, mm -hmm. uh, you're Catholics and you're religious people. That's not the way blacks are supposed to be, but you still have that ability to mm -hmm. say, well, oh, wait a minute, I was never part of the Holocaust, my people were never oh, okay. part of that. We have yeah. no guilt. I mean, Germans can't say this. Like Ratzinger yeah. cannot say this, but you yeah. can. And you yeah. can. And, and I guarantee you, once you start talking about uh, Jews, uh, you will, there will be uh, all sorts of uproar because you're not allowed to talk about them. But if yeah. you do talk about them, you will have an access to the real um, hidden grammar of mm. what is going on in the West. And not only that, you'll have access to the hidden grammar of human history. Mm. Human history is basically the conflict between the descendants of the Jews who accepted Christ and the descendants of the Jews who, uh, who rejected Christ. That is mm. the conflict of human history. It's the conflict mm. between Logos and anti-Logos. And now, as you, as Africa, Africa was, Sub-Saharan Africa was off by itself for millennia. Mm. You're off by, nobody can get there. You can't get up the Congo River. It's 280 mm -hmm. miles of rapids and waterfalls. Mm. You can't get up the Nile River because of the cataracts. The only way you can get in is through uh, uh, Tanzania. What's Tanzania? Bogmayo which is near mm. Dar es Salaam. That's the only way to get in. And even, even getting into, from Mombasa, you, you've got all of those mosquitoes in Mombasa. <laughs> yeah. And you have to climb up, uh, up to the uh, 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 plain 
that that uh, internal plateau, which just means you've been isolated. You've been isolated mm. for millennia, and now you're mm. being integrated into the world. And the question is, are is log are you going to make contact with this higher logos at this yeah. point? Or is it going to be derailed by racial thinking? You got yeah. racial thinking uh, among blacks and you got racial thinking among whites. And the cure to racial thinking in both instances is Catholicism. Mm. Okay. Well, okay. I have three questions somehow wrapped into one. I And somehow they have to do with what you've been talking about. So number one has to do with Nyerere, uh, the first president of Tanzania. So he somehow managed to live his faith well. He he had one wife. He he was a great statesman. I think I could call him that. And uh, and he also found a way of integrating Tanzania, which was somehow through this system called Ujamaa. Some people say it's the same as socialism, but Africanized. I'm not very sure about that. But anyway, the point is that Nyerere is special. There's something about him that makes him stand out. So that's the first question. I don't know what it was that made him the way he is and why other African leaders cannot be like that. Because there are other leaders who are Catholic, but they are not like him, you see. Right. So there's something about Nyerere. Then the other question has to do with John Paul II. Can we, can we let's 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 deal with them one at a time, okay? They, they, they are somehow related. I think they are. Just let me ask this second one at least. Okay. John Paul II came to Kenya three times, and this was at the beginning of his pontificate. I think eighty, eighty-one, and then later ninety-five. So he didn't go to any other African country as many times as he did Kenya. So I'm just wondering if he was he saw something there. Or maybe there's a backstory that we don't know about, and he was trying to. Maybe he saw that maybe we can do something in Kenya, or there is a certain enemy we can fight together there. So I don't know if it related to all this idea of, uh, right. you know, uh, the the I don't know the, the the logos that maybe is present in I some think, countries more than others. You know that kind yeah, of idea. I do. Yeah. I do. I think I think I know what's going on because I've been right. to Tanzania and I've been to Kenya, and they're yeah. very different countries. They're right. very different countries. And the main way that uh, Nerere united uh, Tanzania and prevented the, the kind of tribal warfare that is endemic uh, yeah. in Africa is the use of Swahili. Yes. He, he, he really promoted Swahili. And he yeah. was, in many ways, a, a, he was a great orator in Swahili. Yeah. And it, it, this is all lost because... Yeah. Nobody recorded it, and he didn't write down his speeches. But he could walk into anywhere in Tanzania, and he could get the people on his side by speaking, yeah. by, by his eloquence, eloquence in Swahili. Yeah. Now, the problem here is, okay, that's good. You united the country, but Swahili is not a world language. Yeah. It's the East African slave trader language, a lot of Arabic in Swahili. Yeah. Okay? So when you go there, uh, I was in, I was in uh, Dar es Salaam. And uh, I say, you know, uh, say hello in Swahili, and I say a few words in Swahili, and then he starts chattering away at me, and I say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, you mean you don't speak Swahili? I said, no. <laughs> he said, what are you doing here? Why did you come to Tanzania if you don't speak Swahili? <laughs> yeah. So people at CUA have told me that when the people, the students come from 
Tanzania, they have to spend some time learning English. Their English is not good. Yeah. It's not as good as the Kenyans. Now, the Kenyans have another, they were a colony, an mm. English colony. The Tanzanians were never an English colony. They were an English protectorate, and it was different mm. in that regard. And so mm. as a result, I don't know whether John Paul II knows this, but I noticed it. The level of discussion in Kenya is much higher than yeah. it is in Tanzania, probably because you were an English colony, probably because you have more contact with the outside world uh, for mm. all for, for better or for worse. I mean, right. to give you one instance, I go to a school uh, in Tanzania and I say, it's an English class and they're 10 year olds. And I mm. say, OK, we're going to do the spider song. The eatsy weensy spider went up the water. So nobody knew what I was talking about. Yeah. I go into a class in Kenya. Everybody sings along. Everybody knows the spider song in Kenya. Yeah. So you've you've made more contact with the outside world in Kenya. I don't know in Tanzania. I, I hope I hope uh, my friends in Tanzania are not listening here because it sounds like I'm making invidious comparisons here. Yeah. But I don't know any uh, equivalent in Tanzania to the Catholic University of East Africa. Right. I don't know any equivalent in Kenya, I'm in Tanzania to Strathmore, to the prep school. Don't know. It's just not there. It's just not there. You don't they don't they didn't make this contact with the outside world in the same way that Kenya did. And maybe that's what's on John Paul II. Maybe that's why John Paul II spent so much time in Kenya. Right. right. Okay, okay, still on Tanzania. Uh, currently in, in, in Africa, the only country, the only president that is, that is holding his ground and refusing to submit to, to what the World Health Organization is, is requesting is Tanzania. It's the, his name is Magufuli. Yeah, right. The president. Yeah. So he is being uh, lampooned by all kinds of media right. sources. But yeah, Mag- I, I also I also want to find out if there's anything between what Magufuli is as a statesman and what Nyerere was, or it's just just a coincidence. Maybe maybe there is nothing special about Tanzania. It's just coincidence. No, I think Magufuli knows who Nyerere was and is trying to do what Nyerere did. Mm. What what you the the, uh, the Achilles heel of Nerere was socialism. Mm. There was a, a Polish priest I met in Tanzania and he says, there's only one thing worse than socialism and that's African socialism. <laughs> All right, let's hear this. And, that's, and that was Ujamaa socialism. Mm. Nerere didn't know what Ujamaa socialism was. He didn't know what it was. Nobody knows what it is. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Ujamaa is the word for family. It seems like a good idea. Now, why did he say that? Why was he committed to socialism? Well, he was he was made uh, president by the Socialist International. And that Mm. began when he got that scholarship to go to Edinburgh. He was chosen by English socialists and he was never he was always a part of the Socialist International. Mm. I mean, you go to go to go to Tanzania. You go to Lakoba. I did this. I went to Lakoba Island. Mm. The only white guy they've ever seen in their lives. The first thing they come up to me and say is, Mazungu, give me money. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
This is the Mazungu has this magic about him. He's just reaching his wallet and he can hand you money and that's the end of your problems. Yeah. Well, Nereri did this his entire life, except that he would go to people like Vili Brandt and Olaf Palma and he would say, Mazungu, give me money. And they would give him money. And mm. that money never reached the Tanzanian people. Mm. It never got out of Dar es Salaam because of this corrupt socialism that Nereri brought into existence because he had to, because he was a creation of the Socialist International, and it, it destroyed him. He didn't know what he was... And so eventually he, he retires, and uh, this man, Rusa... No, no, I forget the man's name, his successor. Anyway, he was called Buona Rusa, Mr. Yeah. Permission. And so every so he was the exact opposite of Nereri. He was Mr. Privatization. And yeah. then so you had the, the second looting of Tanzania, because if there's two things wrong in this world, one is called socialism and the other is called capitalism. And they're both wrong. Yeah. And he wasn't smart enough to understand that. So I asked him, I, I talked to Anna Nereri. Yeah. I met her in Dar es Salaam. And I said, did your father ever read Quadragesimo Anno. <laughs> and the priest who was with me says he read all of the documents of Vatican II. And I turned to him and I say, a little embarrassed silence. I said, well, it's not a document of Vatican II. Yeah. It came out in the 1930s. If yeah. Nereri had read Quadragesimo Anno, he would know that no Catholic can be a socialist. Yeah. Socialism is the offspring of Bolshevism. No, it, it, socialism is the offspring of capitalism, and the grandson of capitalism is Bolshevism, <laughs> communism. This is a, a dead end if he had known that. But then it, the question is, even if I had stood there and explained it to Nereri, could he have done anything? Because he was beholden mm. to the Socialist International and had to work with them. That's, that's just part of the story. So part of what he did, he brought Che Guevara. He was supplying Che Guevara. In mm. the Congo. This is all in the Nereri book. You can read all about it in the Nereri book. So he's part of, he's the link between the Chinese communists and uh, Che Guevara. Mm. The Chinese weapons are going through Tanzania to get to Che Guevara. Nereri idolized Mao Zedong. So these, oh, well, this, is, yeah. this is all part of the, the what comes out in the, in the book I wrote. And it led to... Um, Lack of development in Tanzania. Mm. Socialism absolutely crippled economic development in Tanzania, and then capitalism made it even worse. You don't think that the Swahili he tried to inculcate in his people as a way of preventing, you know, in in-house fighting. You don't think that helped in any way to 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 amalgamate the country or to bring them together? Of course, or, it did. It did. It, it, it exactly did that. Swahili united the country because it was not a, it was not any one tribal language. So it, 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 in this regard, he was different than, say, Jomo Kenyatta. Jomo mm. Kenyatta never stopped being a Kikuyu chieftain. He never mm. stopped being that. The Kikuyu are the dominant force. They're the dominant ethnic group in Kenya. And mm. uh, he was just an expression of that. Uh, the uh, Nereri came from a, a small and insignificant ethnic group. 
in in Tanzania, and so he yeah. could not simply be a whatever he was. I forget the name of the the group, but he could not be that type of chieftain. He had to be the father of the entire country, and he understood what that meant because it was Catholicism. Because Catholicism it, uh, transcend it doesn't it doesn't abolish ethnicity, but it mm. transcends ethnicity. Okay, could we look at that from the point of view of logos? Now, there's a logos that Nyerere is trying to build up from the point of view of language. And then there's another logos, which is, I would say, the political ups and downs of, of societies, which he didn't understand and somehow clashed with this other logos. Is there any such problem you are seeing there? Or rather, what I'm asking is, is there a superior one? Maybe the ethnos that he was trying to build up is stronger than the, than the, than the polit politics that, that, that destroyed him eventually. Well, and, first and of all, he he thought he could go from zero to 60 miles an hour in mm. four seconds. And so uh, to, to just to illustrate this, his father had 17 wives. Yeah. OK, got back to polygamy, which I think is the scourge of development in East Africa. Yeah. And then his brother had eight wives. And his uh, Nareri said to his brother, Nareri had one wife. And so he said to his brother, why do you need, why do you have eight wives? And the brother said, well, I need the children to work on my farm. And Nareri said, buy a tractor. Now that is, that's in a nutshell what happened in Tanzania. So Nareri, watching the industrialization that took place in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, looking uh, in the 1950s at what Chairman Mao was doing in China with the great leap forward, stuff like that. Nareri mm. thought, I can do it here. We can do it here. All we need are tractors. Well, it's not that simple. It's not that simple because you need a kind of a political, intellectual infrastructure mm. before you know how to use a tractor. What you're doing with a tractor is you're, you're, you're cutting the whole development short. What you need to do is mobilize labor. The tractor is a tool that will allow you to make your labor more efficient. But if you don't know how to mobilize labor, it's not going to work. So you went from, what was the source of labor? The source of labor was your family. <laughs> you had you had uh, 17 wives because then you had 100 children that go out with that hoe. Give those kids a hoe yeah. and you go out and you start chopping away. And that's the mobilization of labor in Africa. Well, you hand them a tractor, it... it let me let me back up here. Uh, I met the Maranol priest who uh, was in charge of the. Uh, what was the name of this? Anyway, it was an Ujamaa village in the west mm. of, of Tanzania. And the, the Maranol priest arrives there in the early 1950s and he builds a pump. Kamuga. Mm. This mm. is the. And so he builds a pump and the pump is fine. It solves the water problem. When he leaves, the pump breaks. No one knows how to fix the pump mm. because you don't have that mobilization of labor or the skills trickling down into the lowest level of the population. All of those boys, all of those Catholic boys from America all grew up fixing automobiles. Yeah, That's what they did. And they didn't, they didn't even know they had these skills because everybody had those skills. Mm. So you bring them to Tanzania and they think, oh, I'll fix it. So I actually I went to uh, the Marinol headquarters 
and it turns out that Father Willie is still alive. <laughs> okay. So I go over to the nursing home, I walk into the room, and I say, the pump in Kamuga's broken. He said, well, I'd fix it. Well, I know you would fix it, but there's nobody <laughs> there who knows how to fix it. Yeah. So I'm at, I'm at Nairari's compound, and suddenly this Land Cruiser pulls up with the flags flying on the, on the, the, the car. Yeah. It's the governor of the Mara State. <laughs> I said to him, the pump in Kamuga's broken. He said, every pump in the Mara State is broken. <laughs> I, I said, well, why don't you fix it then? He said, oh, it's very complicated. Well, that was the end. <laughs> so the pumps are still broken. You see what I mean? So Nareri thought he could make this. Everybody thought it's not it wasn't just Nareri. This was the mm. entire world. They were trying, they thought you could make steel in your backyard. This is what Mao Zedong said. It was a disaster. Mm. The Soviet collectivization was a disaster ultimately for the Russian people. But everybody thought you could do it, and Nareri thought he could do it, and you can't. You mm. can't because you have to have a sophisticated labor force, and you you can't get there overnight from your children with hoes out there chopping away at the, you know, planting mm. corn or whatever you're planting. Mm. You don't see any catalyst that can hasten the process of, of making the labor for sophisticated or the education process. Why can't, why can't people, why can't we in Africa somehow catalyze these centuries of development through education, is that a possibility or it's an illusion? No, it's it's a possibility. But the question is, first of all, how good is your education? Mm. How good is the system? Uh, and how long will it take? How long mm. is it going to take? And where do you start? This is why I thought, let's start with Catholic school uniforms. Because mm. the production of cloth is the most important production in any economy. There is not one major economy that didn't start off by producing cloth. So, the beginning of the modern era, Florence. What was Florence famous for? It was famous for wool and silk later, silk later. And they went from that to banking and they wrecked the entire economy. That's why Florence is a museum. They were succeeded, the Medici did that. They were succeeded by the Fuggers in Germany. How did the Fuggers get started? By making cloth. What did they do with the money? They started a bank and they wrecked it. <clears throat> 18th century. How did England become the most powerful country in the world? How did they end up conquering Kenya? It was cloth production. They created the industrial revolution where they spin cloth. 19th century. It's America. 20th century. It's Japan and China producing cloth you cannot produce you cannot proceed as an economy unless you start with cloth production if you allow matumba into the country you are destroying mm. the production of cloth and means you will always be a colony mm. are, are you just limiting it to cloth or you maybe you mean agriculture as a basis not just cloth is based on agriculture cotton but you have, to, you have to grow cotton in order to get cloth, or you have to have sheep in order to get wool. That is the basis for the economy. And it, it, it just from a historical perspective, mm. there's never been a con an economy that developed that didn't begin with the production of cloth. That's why, why I'm saying... 
why can't it be i don't know a horticulture or coffee or tea or or something else that's not limited to cotton because cotton also depends on the kind of soil you have i guess you know this is uh, in my article on matumba you first of all you're competing against texas which is the uh, most efficient producer of cotton in the world one farm in texas can produce all the t-shirts in china they, they you're competing against them which is my you have to mm. close off your market okay mm. but let's take uh, coffee one of the success stories i got a brochure from the diocese of mbinga there's a, a collaboration between the diocese of mbinga and the diocese of Würzburg on coffee mm. They buy the coffee beans at a high price, and then they roast them the way the Germans like them, and then they sell them in Würzburg. Okay, that is, it's not, it's more of an export. Uh, it, it, you're, you're not, you're producing a coffee bean. Mm. You're not even roasting it in, in Tanzania. You're mm. sending raw beans because the Germans want to roast their coffee. It's all what you have to do is concentrate on surplus value. Okay. Mm. Obviously, if you plant a coffee plant and then you get the bean, you have created surplus value. But the real surplus value comes in manufacturing. That's mm. where the real value comes. So if you just let's say uh, you have a grain of wheat, how much value does a bushel of wheat have? Uh, how much value does flour have? It's got more value than wheat. And then bread has even more value than flour. And that's where the real, it's in manufacturing that you make real gains in surplus value. So if you're always exporting raw materials, you will never develop. That is the whole principle mm -hmm. of colonialism. You okay. export cotton to England. This in the, it was in the United States as well. The South mm -hmm. would export cotton to England. England would then sell them cotton dresses. That's where all the money gets made when you're making the dress, not so much as when you're making the cotton. The same thing is true, would be true of, uh, of Kenya. I see. Okay, I would like us to talk a bit about Joseph Conrad and his book, Heart of Darkness. Uh, especially, okay, for now, let me just ask a question which I didn't understand too well. At the end, when, uh, I think it's Mr. Kurtz, when he's dying, he, he utters those words. He says, uh, the horror, or the horror of it all, and then he dies. And the question that I was asking myself is, what what did he? What was the horror? Was it the horror of barbarism in Africa, or was it yes. the horror of of, of he, Was it his realization that the London is just as bad as as Africa because we are treating them like barbarians? We ourselves are barbarians. Or you know, there are many levels you can understand that statement. Yeah, I think I think uh, so. It begins. First of all, Conrad is a Pole, okay? Mm. So he has, he's been raised in a Catholic country, even though it's not a country yet, but it still has the Polish nation is a Catholic nation. So he has all of this understanding of the logos of Christianity, mm. okay? And now he's uh, a sailor and he's sailing up the Congo. Mm. Uh, this is really different than Europe. And the people look really different and you can't talk to them. Yeah. There's a fundamental failure of Logos at the beginning of this book mm. where you're wondering, I can't talk to them. If I can't talk to them, are they human beings? <laughs> yeah. And then you have this kind of missionary impulse where you have this understanding that Jesus Christ is the Logos incarnate. 
This is for the entire world. Yeah. We're all human beings. There is Logos here. So you have this article of faith based on Christianity, and then you're confronted with the actuality of your contact with this people that's been living off in the jungle for millennia. Mm. And the contact here is basically Belgian imperialism, mm. which is ruthless. It was at this time, Conrad wrote the book. I don't know whether you know the story about the Belgian missionaries. So the, the, the king of Belgium decides he's going to have a rubber plantation. Mm. Congo is going to be his rubber plantation. And he's got these native laborers. And if they don't produce enough, he cuts their hand off. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Ruthless. Absolutely. So the missionaries, mm. take they put white shirts on the people and they got their hands the stump of their arm and they send pictures and it scandalizes the entire civilized european world they're scandalized at what uh, colonialism really means this is what it really means in england they're talking about the white man's burden have you heard of the white man's burden no well it was kipling rudyard kipling was in a british imperialist and he thought that colonialism was good because it was the white man's burden. Because the white man brought civilization to the black man. And that's good. And so it's suddenly you have the faith in missionary activity is being shaken by the actual practice of colonialism where you're cutting off people's hands. Yeah. And this is where, Con, this is where Con, Conrad comes in. Mm. And he's trying to make sense of this as they're traveling up the Congo, and they're looking for Kurtz. Now, Kurtz was a missionary. So the, you, your faith is that your, your faith in Jesus Christ is stronger than the barbarism that surrounds you. Mm. But sometimes you don't know. Are you sure? And I think this is what happened to Kurtz. He went native. You know, it, it's called going native. You know, I think there's an element of uh, sexual seduction that mm. went on here. There's that mm. woman at the end, you know, she's yeah. raising her arm. So he, 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 the, 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 the white man, uh, is he going to reform polygamy or is he going to enjoy polygamy? Yeah. Is, he going to, is, is Africa going to be a release from the burden of Christianity, which usually means uh, sexual morality, mm. which all men hate? Uh, or is are, are, are you is your are you going to be able to reform the Congolese or the Congolese going to reform you? Yeah, that's the contest, and it's just what you sense is this is overwhelming. I mean, I have never sailed up the Congo, but <laughs> I can imagine what this rainforest is like and how overwhelmed. It's not like East Africa. It, yeah. it, it's just you're overwhelmed by this physical this environment the people have succumbed to the environment they're a product of the environment how do you think you can actually change this when you can't even talk to these people and i think yeah. that's the pessimism that you find at the end yeah. where he succumbs europe succumbed to africa from a moral point of view europe succumbed because of their sexual weakness Sexual vice. I think that's the whole point of point of the story. I mean, what do you think? Well, I've read a statement which I'm still really thinking about. I think it was from 
it was from Thabo Mbeki, president of the of the of South Africa after Mandela. He said something like, "Africa has never really been evangelized. What we see is many a veneer of modernity, but underneath is layers of paganism." that still persists. And that's why we keep on going through cycles of the same, same war and poverty is right. on top is just a thin layer, but uh, which is a very worrying trend somehow because we have never really received the message of Christ then. I, or I don't know which country I could say this one was Christianized. This guy's enculturation. Well, that, that, let's, let's talk about the enculturation process. Yeah. So let's go back to that brochure. Uh, so yeah. Diocese of Mbinga founded yeah. 1987. And then the facing page, Diocese of Würzburg. When was that founded? 730. <laughs> What's the difference between Würzburg and Mbinga? It's 1,400 years of Christianity. So do, do, what, uh, think, of, think of what Würzburg was like in 730. Mm. And then the Benedictine monks arrive and they start building vineyards along the Danube. I sailed down, I rode a boat down the Danube. There are all of these vineyards, uh, fruit plantations. They were all brought there by Benedictine monks. Now mm. imagine what would have Germany would be like if all of the Benedictines left Germany in 770. <laughs> and you have what happened in Tanzania, which is basically they arrived in 1950, mm. pretty much after World War II, I mean, I know they were earlier in Kenya, but let's just take Tanzania. They arrive in around 1950, mm. uh, mostly. And then uh, in the 1960s, Nerera says, we don't need you anymore. You can go home now. And if you're going to come, this is a speech he actually gave at the Marinal headquarters in New York to the nuns. But if you come back, you have to act, you have to live according to the principles of Ujamaa socialism. Well, what uh, does that mean? That means you got to take a bucket and you got to carry the bucket to this mud puddle and fill it up with muddy water and then spend your day picking up sticks uh, so that you can cook your, your uh, ugalu uh, in the evening. <laughs> Ugali. <laughs> Ugali, whatever. And, and this is this. So you're wasting your time. You're supposed to be raising them, making their labor more efficient, not succumbing to this primitive form of, of labor. And so that's what happened. It was disrupted. In other words, the, the, the Christianization process was disrupted. And then at the same time, the West is losing its convictions uh, because they don't believe in Christianity anymore. I mean, yeah. the West has defected to a large extent from Christianity, the French Revolution, Russian Revolution, all those things. That's what we're talking about. So we are caught in the mix of all this. Okay, but there's a country that I find I find that Christianity is somehow settled. This is Uganda. Today, by the way, is the feast of Charles right. Luanga Charles and companions. Luanga, that's right. Yeah, so I, earlier I was talking about catalyzing this process so that we don't have to take 800 years. Perhaps the martyrdom in Uganda did that. The fact that some people actually did die for their faith and that 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 built the faith from the grassroots upwards until now uganda is i think the most catholic country in africa and i i find i deal with many ugandans but 
I find their faith is still more on the level of superstition than logos. I don't find discourse that somehow you can say is... Uh, they will just throw up their arms from time to time and say, God will take care of that. You know that kind of reasoning, which is very fideistic. Right. Yeah, the, the element of reason, I wouldn't say it's there, but the faith seems to be there because they actually behave like people who have faith. You know, the way, for instance, they handled HIV. They, they, they did it from a moral perspective and it somehow got eliminated. So Uganda seems to be special from that point of view. I don't know what you think. I've never been to Uganda, mm. uh, but I know that they don't like homosexuality. Yeah, and that's I know that they, uh, they, their, their country is, you know, like Mexico was created by Our Lady of Guadalupe when she appeared yeah. there, and mm. East Africa was created by the the the, uh, the martyrs, the Ugandan martyrs, and the yeah. main issue there was they didn't. Uh, agreed to uh, homosexuality. Yeah, this, this is an important issue because the United States is now officially promoting homosexuality throughout the world. So this mm. is this is the role uh, that Uganda plays right now in East Africa. The the Nereri family always go to the martyr shrine. That yeah. is like the spiritual center of East Africa. Mm. They go there all the time from from Tanzania. The Ugandans do not like the Tanzanians at all. The Ugandans do not like to speak Swahili. I, mm. I talked to a Ugandan nun here at Notre Dame, and she said she knew three sentences in Swahili. Open the door, lie down on the floor, and tell me where the money is. <laughs> the Tanzanian army had invaded Uganda, and so they resent mm. that, and they don't like to speak. But even with all that, this mm. martyr shrine is the center of spiritual life in East Africa. Yeah. Mm. And it deals, and you're getting to the heart of the matter, which is sexual morality. You can't have a civilization without sexual morality. Homosexuality, as far as I understand it, was unknown in Africa. Polygamy was the issue, but we're still mm. dealing with sexual morality. Now homosexuality is becoming more important because that's the main form of subversion of your culture that the United States is promoting right now. Mm. Um, but, so, so, but the point here is, again, what was Germany like in 820? What do you think the people of Germany were like uh, you know, when their grandfather converted to Catholicism? Were they were they philosophers? Were they <laughs> yeah. all reading uh, 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 Greek? Uh, were they were they were they capable of understanding the discussions that took place at the Council of Nicaea? No. Hardly, yeah. No. Well, why should why should Africa be any different? We have to go through every culture has to go through this kind of development. And this is why Vico is important. There's a whole chapter on Vico. And I use this in my, uh, I talked about Africa in my, uh, in the chapter on Vico, because all of these cultures have to go through a form of development. And now what you're seeing is that the West and Europe and the United States has reached that stage of decadence, going into decline. Sodomy and usury are classic signs of decadence. And that's what rules the West now. And so now you've got, East Africans who have not, uh, certainly not achieved that level of philosophical development that Germany had in the 19th century, but mm. that's the way it goes. Sorry, you didn't do it, but there's no, the Germany's decadent. There's no point going back to Germany now. God, in a sense, allows these cultures to rise and then he just throws them away. Mm. He allows them to destroy themselves. Like Rome. Rome collapsed and it was replaced by the Holy Roman Empire. 
which was Christianity. Mm. So this cycle is the same type of cycle is happening in East Africa now. And it's your job as an educator to introduce them to Logos, which mm. is why I want to sell my book to you so that you use <laughs> it as a textbook. I want okay. generations of Africans reading Logos Rising because that's my job in human history is to resurrect Logos at this particular point for places where they don't have that tradition. Mm. Okay, fine. We are running out of time and I'm getting worried. I, I think we'll not finish all the questions I have. Let me see if I, this lasts, maybe one or two questions if you'll allow me. So, uh, there, Africa seems to be full of uh, what I, I think you have called it ethnos, this idea that that we have a characteristic spirit, we have tribes, we have uh, communities which are solid or they are strong, uh, but they fight against each other. So they need to move, we need to move from ethnos to logos, that, that transition. You are hinting that it has to necessarily take time, which I think is arguable. Uh, but what do you think is the easiest way to move from from this farm rootedness in culture to 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 the actual logos to to making to making um, you can say what is tribal rational or or what is primal and sophisticated? I don't know if I'm using the right words yes, here. No, you're right. Yeah. That is the dialectic. That is the dialectic of human history. You have. I mean, just to give you, uh, you have a block of marble yeah. that's real, but it's not conscious. You have an idea that's uh, that's conscious, but it's not real. You put the two together. Uh, this is the idea of Moses. You put that together with the block of stone. You have Michelangelo's Moses. That is all of human history. That is what labor is. That's what has to happen in Africa now. So there's only one vehicle for the development of ethnos into logos that's the catholic church that's mm. why i am hopeful when i go to east africa because i see how strong the catholic church is and the catholic church has always been involved in education what you have mm. to ensure is that it's good education now the mm. main crisis here is going to be if you're at a university you're going to want to have the credentials that the big universities in the west had and that has and that's a disaster that has been a disaster for Catholic education in the United States of America. Read the last chapter about Notre Dame and what happened at Notre Dame, and you will have a cautionary tale of what not to do in Africa. So you have to, you as the educator, have to make sure that your students are making contact with Logos and not some Western ideology. That's mm. the problem with higher education right now. I see. Okay. But Logos, uh, the Catholic Church is the vehicle of Logos in human history, and it's obvious that this is happening in Africa, in East Africa. Yeah. The question is, how long is it going to take? Well, that yeah. depends on how good your educational system is. Mm. I see. Okay. Uh, let's see. The last one now. Uh, Africa is also known as... Uh, I have once said that, uh, I've said this in a, in a blog article, I said that we seem to endear ourselves to tragedy or most of Africa is known for, you know, 
fighting, war, weeping. Even the movies made have those kind of titles. So I have thought that maybe this is also another manifestation of the logos, that it's not just seen in, in, uh, in language or in, not even in monogamy as such. It could also be that there's a way in which the logos expresses itself in suffering, and out of it you, you, there's some, some, some joy that results because suffering purifies. So is it possible that maybe this transition from ethnos to logos could also pass via the route of suffering or of yes. the cross? Or could that also be something that we have never really tapped into and we can take advantage of and maybe the bishops can help the faithful yes. realize this connection, yeah. Look, if you have a strong ethnic identity and you're next to another group that has an equally strong ethnic identity, there's going to be conflict. Yes. It, it goes with strong identity. So you want the opposite of that. Well, look at look at uh, Europe now. No one has a strong identity. There's no conflict. I mean, or there is conflict now. There's class conflict, but there's no ethnic conflict because no one has an identity anymore. Yeah. So conflict is going to be part of uh, of ethnic identity. You can't have a, so the point of this is not to abolish ethnic identity. That's what the United States tried to do. You yeah. come over to America and you become part of the the melting pot and they melt you down and make you forget your parents' language and so on and so forth. That's led to this mass society. America is what it is. That's what it is to be an American. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's not an ideal way to deal with this. What you need is this tension, okay? The tension of the dialectic, okay? Where you have this, you, what is the third stage of the dialectic? Uh, Hegel calls it Aufhebung. Aufhebung means to exalt and maintain. In other words, you're, you're maintaining what you are, but you're taking it to a higher level by the infusion of Logos. That's, his word is Vernunft. That is the, the point of this, is you understand the meaning of the ethnos because you have this Logos. So let's, the classic example I would give is the Jesuits going to Paraguay. Mm. And they meet the Guarani. They walk into the forest and they meet people that have never seen people like that. And they sit down and they learn their grammar they learn the language and they write the grammar and the dictionary for the Guarani language, for the Guarani people. That's the first step of Logos coming in contact with ethnos. That is the first step, writing a grammar and a dictionary. And then from that point, you move higher and higher and higher. And I'm saying that the time is right now for the introduction of Logos into East Africa, because now it is time for Africa to integrate into the global development of Logos that is the course of human history. So for thousands of years, the, the sub-Saharan Africa was off by itself, completely yeah. isolated, off by themselves. And now we have, because of colonialism, they have been integrated in a bad way, okay? This is, this is what Conrad is talking about in Heart of Darkness. But yeah. even with that evil, there is good that came of that, because now we have talk, we can talk to each other. Now you speak English. Now we have this common vocabulary that is the legacy of the evil British Empire, but it's also an example of God bringing good out of evil. And that is the stage where we are. So we're ready to make the stage. I, that's the sense I had when I talked to your students. Mm. They're ready 
to start talking about philosophy. They're ready to start talking about Logos. They're ready to see themselves as part of this bigger whole that includes that 16-year-old kid in India and the white guy from South Bend, Indiana. And now we can have this kind of common conversation. That's what the point of this book is. Okay. And this suffering route, you have not touched on it as such. The suffering comes when you have this conflict between one ethnic group and another. Because they don't know how to get along with each other, because they are ethnocentric, and they haven't—they don't have that common lingua franca of philosophical or political nationhood. It just never developed there. Like Kenya is like, Kenya was created by people in Berlin in 1881, where they just drew lines yeah. in Africa. There's no, there was no internal development there. Don't you see a danger of? If you speak like that, you might end up with a, a Rwanda scenario where the conflict between a Hutu and a Tutsi results in bloodshed. So to say that the clash has to be there, it has to be a clash that is nonviolent at the same time. So uh, that's I am, what... I am not trying to, to glorify what happened in Rwanda. I am <laughs> saying it is simply a consequence of strong ethnic identity which has not been redeemed sufficiently by the gospel, which can integrate all ethnic groups into a universal organization called the church. Now, I don't know to what extent, I know there were Catholics in Rwanda. I know yeah. that there was, uh, that you, you've reached a point where your Catholicism has not uh, sanctified your ethnicity. That's possible. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, what what, yeah. that's, that's what happened in Rwanda. That's what happened. That's what Germany was like. I mean, you can't expect, I mean, you had these strong ethnic identities and it took, Germany didn't become a nation until 1871. Okay, the Benedictines arrived a thousand years before and yet these German tribes could not get along with each other until 1871 and then it was basically imposed on them by Prussia and it led to all sorts of conflict. So I'm saying that this is, this is just part of human history. You can call it the tragedy of human history. I'm, I am not advocating ethnic cleansing. Uh, I am just <laughs> yeah. saying that ethnic conflict is part of having a strong identity. I mean, I can't yeah. tell a Hutu, a Hutu from a Tutsi. I can't look mm. at them and make any. I, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. the, the Americans think it's all racial. You know, well, what, how do you, you got 76 different ethnic groups in Kenya I mean, in Tanzania alone, and they all look completely identical to people from the West. And yet they, they, they are engaged in these conflicts. You know, yeah. this is part of what it's part of the necessary struggle of history. Yeah. It's part of what it means to have a strong ethnic identity. You're going to come in conflict with other groups, but there is a way of working this out. And that's called Catholicism, which is the vehicle mm -hmm. of Logos in human history. And the main way that people understand Logos in human history is through the Catholic Church. Okay, well, uh... I have a theory on my end, which I'm really trying to develop, which somehow I think it might disappoint you a bit. So <laughs> it's that I think that the logos is not sufficient. I think that I, I started thinking about this in a certain way, especially after the Feast of Pentecost. You see in the Feast of Pentecost, this idea of different tribes, languages come together each of them maintains its identity without losing it. And they do it in a way that somehow goes against the way 
it happened in the Tower of Babel. In Tower of Babel, there was conflict and then separation. Here, right. there is a, a, there's a new thing, which is the Holy Spirit, which I don't think we can identify with Logos. There's something more to it. To it. So, and that's what I can't put my finger on, but I know it has to do with the Trinity at the end of the day. It's not just, Logos is the Son, but then there is also the Spirit, which is the Spirit of uniting the Father and the you Son. You can't separate, when you're yeah. talking about the Trinity, you cannot separate one from the other. They are all the same, one in being. They all have the same being, but different manifestations of that being. So you can't say that the Spirit has no Logos or that God the Father has no Logos, even though Jesus Christ is the Logos. He's the Logos, yeah. You can't okay. separate it in that way. That's where human metaphors start to fail. Okay. Uh, and you wouldn't identify this Spirit with, with the sort of synthesis Hegel spoke about, which is... Which is, I, I just don't want to, to, to convince someone that conflict is necessary so that peace can be found. And because the conflict is always almost identified with bloodshed. And I don't know how that and the Holy Spirit come together. That's, the, that's, that's my, my, my dilemma. You're, you, are, you are raising conflict to a higher level. This is Aufhebung. To exalt and maintain. So you're maintaining, you're saying there has to be conflict that's necessary, but it doesn't yes. have to take place at the level of bloodshed. It can yes. take place at the level of logos, intellectual discourse, and that's yeah. the whole point of history. I see. Okay. Fine. I think uh, we have definitely not finished, but I think for today, a number of issues have been ironed out. Good. So, okay, yeah. send me when you post it. Send me the link because I, I would like to share this with my my uh, re, my YouTube followers. All right, thank you very much, Doctor Jones. Okay, and let me know if you if you have trouble getting that book, the Nereri book. I will. Okay, okay, thank you. And I'll let you know when I hear from Father Luquata about that uh, possibility because I think we could have we could have a big discussion uh, yeah. with a lot of different people with exactly what we're talking about right now. All right. Okay. okay, thank you. Always a pleasure. Peace. Bye bye. Peace to you.